guys. Welcome back to another episode of Reading During Recess. My name is Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. This is our 12th episode. Today, we are going to be talking about the first three books in a series of unfortunate events. I'm so excited. I can't stop smiling. <laughs> I know. Yes, this is one of my favorite series of books when I was a kid, so I'm really super jazzed about talking about it. So A Series of Unfortunate Events is a series of 13 children's books, which has sold over 60 million copies, and also inspired a 2004 film and a Netflix series of the same name. And the books were published from 1999 to 2006. It's funny, it doesn't like, when I look at those numbers, I realize it wasn't in print for like that long. Yeah. (laughs) But it feels like this huge timeless thing it's like the beatles you know they're like yeah right you're like yeah how could something with this huge of like a cultural impact have only been around for this long and gone so poorly i'm talking of course about the plots of the books and the beatles relationships yes (laughs) if you are one of the two surviving beatles and you're listening (laughs) i couldn't say it with a straight face Oh my god, what book would you want to read with Ringo? Oh my god, why would you ask me such a hard question that needs so much time devoted to it? I kind of feel like a picture book would be. I was literally just thinking that. Yeah, like The Very Hungry You know what the first thing that came into my, my mind was? Was um, Ferdinand the Bull. <laughs> For like no reason, yeah. I just think he'd like that book. Yeah, I think so too. I also feel like he... no. Okay, I feel like Paul McCartney would really like the rainbow fish. Paul McCartney would love the rainbow fish. Yeah. He would definitely rock with it. Okay, we have to record this. (laughs) Yeah, all right, back to work. So the books in the series are written by Lemony Snicket, which is a pen name for Daniel Handler. And in the series of unfortunate events, Snicket is both the narrator and a character who informs the reader of the difficult lives of the three Baudelaire orphans and makes little side remarks that hint at his own life. And as the plot progresses, the Baudelaire's gradually confront further mysteries surrounding their family and deep conspiracies involving a secret society known as VFD, with connections to Olaf, their parents, and many other relatives. The books have been described as having Victorian Gothic tones and utilizing absurdist humor. They have a lot of dark humor, sarcastic storytelling, and anachronistic elements as well as frequent cultural and literary allusions. One of the interesting things about the book, and we'll talk more about this later, is that it's really difficult to pinpoint when and where it takes place in terms of... Yes! I asked my dad when I was a kid. I was like, can you... Because you know when you would read a book as a kid, and yeah. you would you would be confused because it would have like elements from a time that you weren't familiar with. So you might ask your parents, and they're like, oh yeah, that's like the 40s. That's why this and this, you know? Mm-hmm. Or something similar. But I brought it to my dad, and I was like, help! And he was like, this is nothing, Teresa. <laughs> this is no time and no place. And I was like, I just can't begin to understand. Yeah, because they Because it's not fantasy, but it's not... (laughs) It's not fantasy, but it's not not fantasy. Like, there's... It's highly unrealistic. And that's why it's talked about a lot in academic writing as being kind of postmodern and also metafictional because it defies a lot of conventions for children's novels. So rather than doing 13 episodes of a series of unfortunate events, we're going to be 
grouping the books together in groups of three, at least for the first few episodes. So in this episode, we're only going to be talking about books one through three, which is The Bad Beginning, The Reptile Room, and The Wide Window. The first seven or so books are very short. Yes, and they have similar plot structures, so. Yes, (laughs) and we'll get more into that in the critique surrounding it. But Sarah, should we hit him with a plot summary? I think we should. Let's start with book one, which is, as I said, called The Bad Beginning. It was published in 1999, as was book two, The Reptile Room. They were released together. The series follows the lives of three siblings, Violet, Klaus, and Sonny Baudelaire. The Baudelaires are wealthy and live in a beautiful mansion with their mother and father, or at least they do at the beginning of the book. And Violet is 14 years old and she loves inventing things. Klaus is 12 years old and is a voracious reader. And Sunny is a baby who has four remarkably sharp and strong teeth and enjoys mm. biting things. The illustrations of Sunny are <laughs> superb. Like, the, the books are amazing, but they are seriously supported by the illustrator, whose name is Brett Helquist. His style is such a great fit. It's kind of eerie and very... It's, it's very Victorian and oddly formal in a strange way. But anyway, Sunny is terrific in the pictures she has like one very long strand of hair that's always got a ribbon tied around it and she really has four like sharp little dog teeth i love that that is sunny's thing i know sunny is a biter biting is not a personality trait except it is and sunny's great one of my favorite things about the three siblings is that they're all just they're really likable yeah. Without being, you know, irritating. They're just, just trying to survive. Yep. They've got a great attitude. They're nice to each other. <laughs> yeah, they're so nice to each other. <laughs> That's one thing that I remember when I read the books. I was like, this is not realistic. They almost never fight. Anyway, so the story actually begins on a cloudy day at Briny Beach where the children are playing. So Klaus is looking for small animals in the tide pool. Violet is skipping rocks, and everything is going great until Mr. Poe, who is a banker and a family friend, arrives and tells the children that their parents have, quote, perished in a terrible fire that burned down their entire home. Like, I don't know if this, if I had this fear before or after this book, if this book was the cause of it, but isn't that just like your two biggest nightmares as a child? Yeah. That you will lose your home and everything you own in a fire and you will also lose your parents. Yeah, it is so distressing. And he warns us, too. Lemony warns us. Yeah, the back of the first book says, I'm sorry to say that the book you are holding in your hands is extremely unpleasant. It tells an unhappy tale about three very unlucky children. Even though they are charming and clever, the Baudelaire siblings lead lives filled with misery and woe. And throughout the series... Lemony urges you to put down the book and read something else. I loved that as a kid. I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. The first lines of the entire series in The Bad Beginning are, if you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning, and very few happy things in the middle. (laughs) I appreciate transparency. Yeah. And yet, the books are so fun, which which is such an interesting dichotomy. So the children, after learning this about their parents, are placed in the care of Count Olaf, 
who is now their legal guardian, and Olaf is a distant relative who the children have never met before, but they're given to him by Mr. Poe because Olaf is the only relative who lives within city limits, and the Baudelaire parents' will instructed that their children should be raised in the most convenient way possible, which Mr. Poe interprets as not leaving town, which seems like a really bad thing to include in your will. Yeah. I just don't understand why, because we learn later, spoiler alert, that the parents are part of VFD, which is like the secret organization, and that they know that their lives are at risk in some level. So like, they're aware that this is a possibility that they could die before, like they could die before their kids are adults, and they still just have this really unclear will. Yep. I, I don't know, maybe it's because they don't know who's going to be alive when they're dead, so it's like they, they seem to be losing uh, that's people right. left and right. Can't give them out to someone who might be next to kick the bucket. You could specify not Count Olaf. Like you if you if you could. know a man named Count Olaf and you know that there is a slight possibility that you might die, I feel like <laughs> you should include in your will, please don't give my kids to Count Olaf. I feel like all parents should include in their will a little section, a little clause that specifies that mm. you don't want your kids to be raised by the worst person you know. I think that's completely fair. Uh, and now I'm thinking about the worst person I know. Okay, anyway. So, unfortunately, when they arrive at his home, the children realize that Count Olaf is a monstrous man. He lives in this filthy ramshackle mansion on the outskirts of town, which, is, again, is just this wonderful, anachronistic kind of image because you almost get the sense that it's, like, a castle, and it's just in a neighborhood. Like, it's next to other houses. Yeah. <laughs> but his house is huge, but he forces the children to share one small bedroom, and the bedroom has only one bed. <laughs> and a small pile of rocks for them to play with. And Count Olaf is an actor. That is his profession. And he has a theater troupe of terrifying and unpleasant comrades, or accomplices, as we later find out. And he mistreats the children terribly. So he forces them to do exhausting chores. He makes them chop wood, clean the entire house every day, and is in no way affectionate or kind to them. So he makes it very clear that he's only interested in caring for them so that it will be easier for him to get his hands on the Baudelaire fortune, even though the fortune will only be available to the children once they come of age. And Count Olaf is described as having a very distinctive appearance. He's tall and thin with a scraggly beard and unkempt hair. And rather than two eyebrows, he has one long eyebrow. And most importantly, he has a tattoo of an eye on his ankle. And his house is also decorated with this eye motif, and so that even when he's not around, the Baudelaire's feel as if this eye is always watching them. This is the description that we get of Count Olaf when they meet him. Hello, 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 Count Olaf said in a wheezy whisper. He was very tall and very thin, dressed in a gray suit that had many dark stains on it. His face was unshaven, and rather than two eyebrows like most human beings have, he had just one long one. His eyes were very, very shiny, which made him look both hungry and angry. And then later, when Count Olaf makes a reference to the Baudelaire fortune, Mr. Poe's eyes widened in surprise, and his coughs echoed in the dark room before he spoke. The Baudelaire fortune, he said sternly, will not be used for such matters. In fact, it will not be used at all until Violet is of age. 
Count Olaf turned to Mr. Poe with a glint in his eye like an angry dog. For a moment, Violet thought he was going to strike Mr. Poe across the face. But then he swallowed. The children could see his Adam's apple bob in his skinny throat and shrugged his patchy shoulders. He is so frightening. He is. So one day, Olaf demands that the children, in addition to uh, their regular work, cook dinner for his entire theater troupe. So they don't know how to cook uh, on account of them being children. So they go next door to Olaf's neighbor, Justice Strauss, who is a very kind lady and is also a justice on the high court. Again, I have no idea how the government functions in whatever place these no, children live in. because there's definitely, like, royalty as well. Like, there's a reference in one of the books to the King of Arizona. So. Yeah, I love that part. I've never, ever, ever forgotten it. Yeah. Anyway, so Justice Strauss has a wonderful library that she lets them use, and the children find a recipe for pasta putinesca. So the children go into town, and they buy the ingredients. One of my favorite parts in the entire book is just the description of them going to the market and how they spend that time. From a street vendor, they purchased olives after tasting several varieties and choosing their favorites. At a pasta store, they selected interestingly shaped noodles and asked the woman running the store the proper amount for 13 people. And then, at the supermarket, they purchased garlic, which is a sharp-tasting bulbous plant, anchovies, which are small salty fish, capers, which are flower buds of a small shrub and taste marvelous, and tomatoes, which are actually fruits and not vegetables, as most people believe. I wanted to be on that shopping trip so bad. I love that there's a pasta store. Right? So they go home, and they cook the dinner, and that's another one of my favorite scenes. Such a sweet moment in the Mm -hmm. book. But when Olaf arrives home, he's furious because for exactly no reason at all, he expected that the children would make roast beef. This is not something that he mentioned to them. It just seemed obvious to him that they would make it. So he's so angry that he lifts Sunny high up in the air to scare her and to act as though he might drop her. And when Klaus steps in, he hits him across the face, which is really scary as a kid. Yeah. (laughs) Like just to read it, I mean... Yeah, and so the next day, the children go to visit Mr. Poe in the city because he is the banker. You'll remember him from earlier. He Him informing them that their parents are dead. I love Mr. Poe. <laughs> Useless son of a bitch. Yeah, he's incredibly incompetent. Also, I love that when they go to visit him, they go to the, quote, banking district. It's, like, implied that it's just this place in town where all the banks are, I guess. Yeah. They, like, pass all these different banks. It's yeah, so- you learn more about the city when they live with Esme Squalor in book six. Yes, then like and all... just, the city doesn't have a name, right? No. there's It's just the city. and It's so weird. I know. So Mr. Poe is in charge of the Baudelaire fortune and also their affairs. There doesn't seem to be like a, like social services organization. Right? It's just their parents' friend. I mean, he's just a banker. He has no training in how to help orphans. So Mr. Poe is nice enough. He's not mean, but he's extremely incompetent and frankly pretty stupid so Mm. he's also always coughing which is kind of his signature he's (laughs) always has a cold so anyways the bottle heirs go to the bank and they assume 
that Mr. Poe will care when he they tell him about the abuse that they're experiencing. But he doesn't really listen to them. He's basically too busy at work. He just tells them, you know, it's going to take a little while to adjust. And this is the first of many interactions that they'll have with Mr. Poe where they try to inform him about a dire threat to their safety. And he is, for whatever reason, incapable of processing this information. It's so frustrating to Don't read. Don't you feel like everybody knows a Mr. Poe, though? Yeah. So the children leave feeling defeated, and meanwhile, Olaf has decided that he's going to put on a play written by Al Funkut that is called The Marvelous Marriage. And the play is very stupid, but basically in the play, Olaf is playing the role of the groom, and he's cast Violet, who you'll remember is 14 years old, to play mm. the bride, which is obviously gross to everyone. Well, not everyone. Olaf seems to think it's fine. It's gross to Violet. So do, like, all the adults who participate, I know. Mr. Poe is, like, excited for them to have this experience. Justice Strauss is in the play. Yeah. She's like, Violet, that is so exciting for you to get to be on stage. And note this, Justice Strauss is going to play the officiant of the wedding. Yes. So Klaus is obviously suspicious of the play, and he does some legal research in Justice Strauss's library and realizes that the play will, in fact, be a legally binding marriage. So it would be legal for Violet to marry, even at 14, if she has the permission of her parent or guardian, who is, unfortunately, Olaf, if she does so in the presence of a judge, and if you'll remember, Justice Strauss is playing the officiant, and if she signs the marriage certificate in her own hand. And once Olaf is married to Violet, he will have access to the entire Baudelaire fortune. Klaus confronts Olaf and reveals that he knows Olaf's plan, which is a tactical error. I think it would have been smarter to keep that information to himself until he figured yep. out how to get out of the play. But And heads up, spoiler alert for the next several books, he continues to do this. All of them do. They're always very proud of themselves when they right. foil Olaf's plans, which, you know, they should be. But, but then they're so proud that they have to go tell him. Yeah, it's foolish. Ugh. These dumb kids. Anyway, so in order to keep Klaus and Violet compliant, Olaf captures Sunny, their baby sister, and dangles her in a birdcage from the tower window in his house. And he tells Klaus and Violet that if Violet does not participate in the play, he will drop Sunny to her death. So then, under the cover of night, Violet, who you'll remember is our inventor, uh, constructs a grappling hook, and she uses it to climb up the exterior of the tower in an attempt to rescue Sunny. And it is such an exciting and kind of heartening moment in the book because she, you know, she makes this grappling hook on her own. She tries twice to get it to stick to something. The second time it like comes down and cuts her shoulder. And the third time it sticks to something and it's thrilling and she climbs the top and horror of horrors when she reaches the top, she realizes that the tower is being guarded by one of Olaf's accomplices. And he is the hook-handed man. So what her grappling hook has attached itself to is horrifyingly his hook. <laughs> yes. It's so scary. It is so scary. Uh, so he places a call after saying some thoroughly creepy things to Violet um, yeah. about her being a pretty young thing. But he places a call to Olaf and Klaus is brought up to the tower and the three children are locked up there until the play starts to prevent them from making any more tactical moves. Violet agrees to do the play and she signs the marriage certificate because she doesn't want Sonny to die. And when the play is over, Olaf is very proud of himself for 
marrying Violet. And so he informs the audience that the wedding was real and that he now has control over the Baudelaire fortune. And Mr. Poe and Justice Strauss are horrified, but admit that the law is the law and that they have to follow the law, even when it's dreadful. Which is a theme in these books that we'll talk about more, but is so incredibly disheartening, especially because at this point we see Justice Strauss as being really the only bright light in the kids' lives. She is, she's, Mr. Poe is not unkind, but in addition to being useless, he's also very detached and not particularly interested in the kids, whereas Justice Strauss is very loving and affectionate, and it's just so disappointing to be let down by this person so early on in their their woes yeah but then violet interjects and says that the marriage was not in fact legally binding because as klaus found out in his research the law requires that the bride sign the marriage certificate quote in her own hand and violet is right-handed but she signed the certificate with her left hand and so justice strauss affirms that therefore the marriage is invalidated and I thought that, that was how the law worked as a kid. Yeah. I, I really, I bought it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wow, she is so smart. But it does kind of point to what you had mentioned, this idea that the law, well, that the idea that the law is arbitrary and stupid and that it can be manipulated or undone with something as silly as putting your pen in the other hand. Also, how embarrassing would it have been? Because Violet didn't know for sure. It's not like there's like a little amendment in, you know, the law where it's like, and by this we mean, are you left-handed or right-handed? How embarrassing would it have been if Violet was like, ta-da, and everyone was like, no, that's nothing. (laughs) You've done nothing. (laughs) So the Baudelaire's are feeling triumphant, but Olaf places a call on his... (laughs) little walkie-talkie immediately to the hook-handed man to drop Sunny off the tower and kill her. But just as he makes the order, who comes walking in the room? It's Sunny. It's too late. She's already been safely let down and returned to her siblings, and Olaf has just admitted to attempted murder in front of an entire theater full of people, and one banker, and one justice of the law. But before he can be apprehended, he cuts out all the lights in the theater and makes an escape in the darkness. And Justice Strauss offers to adopt the children, but Mr. Poe says that the Baudelaire's parents will require that the children be raised by a relative. And so the book ends with the kids unsure of who is going to be their next guardian. So we're going to give a summary also of the reptile room and the wide window, but I wanted to take a little break and talk about a few other things. One of the things I wanted to talk about is the way that the book utilizes humor, because they are very sad stories of course but there's a lightness to them because of the narration mm-hmm. and the yeah the humor that lemony snicket utilizes one of my favorite little moments of that in this first book is when he says this is when klaus is doing a lot of research and he's reading very boring legal books and it says the book was long and difficult to read and klaus became more and more tired as the night wore on Occasionally, his eyes would close. He found himself reading the same sentence over and over. He found himself reading the same sentence over and over. He found himself reading the same sentence over and over. 
But then he would remember the way the hook hands of Count Olaf's associate had glinted in the library, and he would imagine them tearing into his flesh, and he would wake right up and continue reading. But yeah, just Ugh. that repetition there. He does it in another book also with Deja Vu. I think he like repeats yes. the same exact sentence. And also in the reptile room. The Evers. Yeah, in the reptile room, there's a part where Violet is using the prongs of an electrical plug to invent a lockpick. And it begins with a disclaimer by Lemony Snicket that you should never, ever, 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 ever play with electrical devices. And he does an entire page just full of the word ever. He says you should never, ever, 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 like a hundred times play with electrical devices. It's got to be more than a hundred. It is literally a full page. Yeah. It's a solid block. So there is moments of humor and lightness like that sprinkled throughout, which I think is what allows the books to be pleasant and fun, even though the storylines are objectively very unhappy. There's an article... I found written by Margaret Mackey that was published in school libraries worldwide in 2003 called Risk, Safety, and Control and Young People's Reading Experiences. And she said, quote, Lemony Snicket's perverse accounts of the Baudelaire children, to whom nothing good ever happens, may seem repetitive and predictable to adults, but the children clearly enjoy the topsy-turvy moral universe. These books are seriously unsafe. There is never going to be a happy ending. And yet, there is some comfort in knowing that because yeah, you such a good point. You can never fully let yourself relax and expect that things will be good, and so because you don't let your guard down, you're more prepared for the yeah. There are no truly devastating gut punches, especially once you realize the formula of Mm -hmm. (laughs) the books and the guardian situation, right? And the perversity and the the absurdity, I think, helps keep the tragedies at arm's length because mm-hmm. this isn't happening in our world. It's happening where there is a king of Arizona. Right. I remember feeling scared by the books sometimes, but I, I don't remember them affecting me deeply emotionally the way that genuinely very sad children's books did, like Charlotte's Web. <laughs> or The Clown of God. <laughs> or The Clown of God. So, in addition to its strong reviews, The Bad Beginning won multiple literary awards, including the Colorado Children's Book Award, the Nevada Young Readers Award, and the Neen Award. And it was also a finalist for the Book Sense Book of the Year. Uh, A Publisher's Weekly Review of The Bad Beginning said, The author uses formal Latinate language and intrusive commentary to hilarious effect, even for readers unfamiliar with the literary conventions he parodies. The peril in which he places the Baudelaire's may be frightening. Count Olaf actually follows through on his threats of violence on several occasions. But the author paints the satire with such broad strokes that most readers will view it from a safe distance. And he's right. Yeah. So some critics have criticized the book series for being formulaic and predictable because the first six books, I would say, are are quite formulaic. They follow pretty much the same basic principle of the children get placed with some zany guardian, Count Olaf shows up in disguise, and has an evil scheme that they have to foil. But I enjoyed the formula as a kid. And it's, you know, their guardians are different people and eventually, like, different institutions. Yeah. In a way that's very, uh, it's very interesting. I would argue that they are never dull for adults. Or little ones. Agreed. Sometimes uh, some of the books came under criticism in some school districts for their dark themes, but... Pansy. Yeah. 
fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, right. Shall we do the summary of book two? Yep. All right. So as we said, book two, The Reptile Room, was also published in 1999, right alongside The Bad Beginning. And in this book, the Baudelaire's have been rehomed, this time with Uncle Monty, a herpetologist who specializes in the study of snakes. And Uncle Monty lives in a large house off of Lousy Lane, a street that always smells like horseradish. <laughs> I love Lousy Lane so much. There's like a few other references to it in the series. And the best part is that it smells like horseradish because it's near a horseradish factory. Yeah, like, are they manufacturing <laughs> horseradish? And that's the only thing they do there? The books kind of feel like they were written by, like, an alien who spent a few <laughs> yeah. months on Earth, you know, and then went back to their planet. And we're like, I think they make food in factories and have yeah. banking districts. Also, Lemony Snicket is a perfectly normal name. Yeah. I also didn't realize that Lemony Snicket chose that name for himself as kind of like a play on Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. I also only just realized that, and it's, ugh, damn, and you know, Sarah, what else? What other great, um, Oh, yeah, so I didn't made? realize until preparing for this episode that Uncle Monty, the snake dude, is a reference to Monty Python. So good. Yeah, of course. I had no idea. Nope. So Uncle Monty is kind and jovial, and the children are well cared for, and they enjoy living with him. He's very passionate about snakes and lets the children help care for the snakes who live in his enormous reptile room. And he also has an enormous snake-related library, which is obviously super exciting for Klaus, who is our reader, and a cabinet full of vials of various snake venoms. And he's planning an upcoming expedition to Peru to gather more snakes and is going to take the Baudelaire's with him, which is super exciting for them because they're getting this chance to utilize their talents. Yeah, it's a really lovely, brief little utopia for them where they're all happy and cared for. And Sonny Baudelaire befriends her favorite snake, which is one that Monty discovered, and the snake is called the Incredibly Deadly Viper. But the name is a misnomer. Uncle Monty named him that because he thought it would be funny. And in fact, the Incredibly Deadly Viper is one of the kindest and gentlest animals in the animal kingdom, and Sunny loves playing with him. But of course, in this universe, nothing good lasts, nothing gold can stay. And Gustav, Monty's assistant, who had unexpectedly quit just before the children arrived, is replaced. And he is replaced by Stefano, a man whom the children instantly <laughs> recognize as Count Olaf in disguise. And not even a particularly good disguise. But as soon as he's alone with them, Count Olaf threatens the children with a large knife and says he will cut off their toes <laughs> if they reveal the secret to Uncle Monty. And it's a terrifying scene. Like, it sounds funny, but it is really frightening. It is. He threatens Sonny first. So even though their toes are at risk, <laughs> the children try to explain to Uncle Monty that Stefano is not who he says he is. And Monty doesn't understand because he's already convinced that Stefano is a spy sent by the Herpetological Society to steal information from Monty's research. And so Monty already has this story in his head. He doesn't really listen to the children. He agrees that we should be suspicious of Stefano, but his belief as to why we should be suspicious is incorrect. So the next morning, the children and Uncle Monty are supposed to leave for Peru on a ship called, what is it, the Prospero? I think so, yeah. But 
horrifyingly, the children discover Uncle Monty's dead body in the reptile room. It appears he's been bit by a venomous snake. He's got two puncture wounds in his neck. And the children are immediately suspicious of Stefano, who is, of course, Olaf. Yes. And so Stefano still tries to take the children with him to Peru, uh, presumably because he figures it will be easier to kidnap them and access their money and hide from the law if he's in a foreign country. However, while they're leaving and driving out on Lousy Lane, Stefano, with the Baudelaire's in the car with him, crashes his car right into Mr. Poe's car because Mr. Poe was arriving to bring the Baudelaire's some of their belongings. And so they all return to Monty's house and a coroner arrives named Dr. Lucafont. And Mr. Poe and Stefano have a very long and very circuitous conversation. Oh my god, I love that part. <laughs> about what to do with the children and how they should leave and how they should, who should go Carry in the body. Yeah, and, and who like... should go in whose car. And the children tell a lie and say that it's always been a dream for them to drive in a doctor's <laughs> vehicle because they don't want to be in the car with Olaf because <laughs> <laughs> they know that as soon as they get back in the car with Olaf, he's going to kidnap them. And this conversation goes on for so long because you keep hearing snippets of it as Violet, like, passes by the room because she's frantically, you know, while this conversation is going on, we'll get to this, but she's frantically trying to figure out what Count Olaf is up to and trying to prove that he's Count Olaf and not Stefano. And every time she, like, passes the room where (laughs) Mr. Poe and Dr. Lucafont and (laughs) Stefano are talking, it's just more conversation about who would go in whose car and at one point Mr. Poe says no wait Monty can't drive he's dead (laughs) Uh, doesn't that just feel like your worst nightmare though like forget about the what other parts of the books are scary the worst thing is trying to coordinate a driving situation (laughs) with five people and one dead body and three cars (laughs) So the children try to tell Mr. Poe that Stefano is really Count Olaf, but Mr. Poe is, of course, very dumb and refuses to believe them, and Stefano has covered up his tattoo on his left ankle with makeup, presumably, because it's not there, but that totally fools Mr. Poe, even though it shouldn't, because he's an adult man. Yeah, it's amazing. Also... In what other way has Olaf done anything about his appearance in this book? I Did he shave his eyebrow at all? Yeah, he shaved his eyebrow. Okay. I'm pretty sure. He has no eyebrow. And that's another thing Mr. Poe says. He's like, no, Count Olaf has one eyebrow and this man has no eyebrow. Oh my god. So Dr. Lucafont has performed the autopsy and determines that the cause of death is a snake bite by the Mamba Dumal. But Klaus does some reading in the library and learns that the Mamba Dumal is famous for leaving large bruises on its victim. But Monty's corpse is pale. And meanwhile, Violet has constructed a lockpick so she can search Stefano's room and suitcase for evidence. And Sunny creates a distraction to buy them more time by pretending to be bit by the incredibly deadly viper, who Mr. Poe believes to be deadly while this is happening violet gets into stefano's suitcase with her lockpick and finds needles with snake venom in them as as well as powder to cover up olaf's tattoo and so she reveals her evidence mr poe rubs the makeup off stefano's ankle and realizes the children were right and he says that olaf will be arrested for murder but olaf makes a speedy getaway in dr lucafont's car as it is revealed that dr lucafont was really (gasps) 
the hook-handed man in disguise. Why did that scare me? <laughs> and there's a little bit of foreshadowing where they talk about Dr. Lucafont as having unusually large hands. Yeah. Because he's wearing fake hands, so mm -hmm. they're just a bit odd and stiff, I guess. Yeah, that'll do it. There's a lot of foreshadowing and dramatic irony in this book, which is really fun. Okay, but wait, quick pause. I'm yeah. going to have to, because we did roast Mr. Poe, and now it's only fair that we roast the kids. All three of the children have had up-close and personal encounters with the hook-handed man. They've looked directly into his eyes. He's looked directly into theirs. He's stroked them with his hook. That sounded <laughs> terrible. You know what I mean. <laughs> their, their face. He strokes their face with the hook. Yeah. There's no reason why his face wouldn't be, like, burned into their brain. And none of them recognize him. They're just like, okay, this is Dr. Lucafont, I guess. That's a really Everybody good has point. Clark Kent syndrome. You got you got him there. You know me, I love getting one over on orphans. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So the reptile room is just full of little references to what's to come. And it's kind of framed as Lemony Snicket giving you all these opportunities to stop reading the book because he's like listen, something really bad is going to happen. Something really, really, really bad is going to happen. You don't need to keep reading. At one point, he says, if Uncle Monty had known what bad luck was soon to come, he wouldn't have wasted a moment thinking about Gustav. I, I wish, and I'm sure you wish as well, that we could go back in time and warn him, but we can't. And that is that. And like at, at various other points, the warnings get more and more specific until it becomes clear that Uncle Monty will not make it out of this book alive. So there's a really great scene where Snicket describes the reptile room, and we get some great description of the building, but really wonderful are the description of the animals. He says, there was a very fat toad with two wings coming out of its back and a two-headed lizard that had bright yellow stripes on its belly. There was a snake that had three mouths, one on top of the other, and another that seemed to have no mouth at all. There was a lizard that looked like an owl with wide eyes that gazed at them from the log on which it was perched in its cage and a toad that looked just like a church, complete with stained glass eyes. And then later on, as you get to know these different animals, he talks about some really interesting ones that he made up that as a child I may or may not have believed in, like the Alaskan cow lizard, which produces milk, the dissonant toad, <laughs> which could imitate human speech in a gravelly voice, and of course the Virginian wolf snake, which they said should never, ever, under any circumstances, be let near a typewriter. <laughs> so one aspect of these books that makes them, I think, pretty notable in the realm of children's literature is that they utilize metafiction for humorous effect. So metafiction is defined by the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Literature as a style of prose narrative in which attention is directed to the process of fictive composition. With this book, we do have fiction in which the author self-consciously alludes to the work by parodying or departing from novelistic conventions, especially naturalism and traditional narrative techniques. So metafiction plays a big role in postmodern literature, which is a literary movement that eschews absolute meaning and instead emphasizes play, fragmentation, and intertextuality. And this is a movement that rose to prominence after World War II in the late 1950s and early 1960s. 
as a reaction to modernist literature's quest for meaning in light of the significant human rights violations of World War II. And so common examples of postmodern literature include Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, and um, some literary theorists that you might have heard of who are very well known for crystallizing post-modernity in literature are people like Roland Barthes, uh, Jacques Derrida, Jorge Luis Borges, and of course, Foucault. And so these books play around with the idea of metafiction a lot. And I found this pretty interesting article by Sarah Austin called Performative Metafiction, Lemony Snicket, Daniel Handler, and the End of a Series of Unfortunate Events. And she talks about the ways that metafiction are used in this series. All right. In her article, Challenging Authority, the Metafictional Story of Tracy Beaker, Joanna Kirk comments that metafiction is often celebrated as destroying the safety and comfort of children's texts, since it forces the child to confront the dichotomy of fiction as simultaneously real and unreal. Narrative authority is particularly important in children's literature, since it can reinforce or disrupt this author-reader relationship. Flouting the conventions of adult narrative authority, Lemony Snicket, the narrative voice in a series of unfortunate events, is listed as author on the cover and title page, but the books are actually written by Daniel Handler. This use of the author as a character in the book allows for a lot of really funny moments and also, I think, genuine curiosity on the part of the reader because you're trying to unravel the mystery of what exactly is going on with the Baudelaire's, but you're also trying to figure out like what exactly is Lemony Snicket's deal because at different points he's described as fleeing as a fugitive and Mm -hmm. having had all these very strange jobs odd life experiences yeah and like his little bio at the end of the books is always very odd let's and it changes with every book i think and his face is always obscured in the pictures yeah like in the reptile room that his bio is lemony snicket was born in a small town where the inhabitants were suspicious and prone to riot He now lives in the city. During his spare time, he gathers evidence and is considered something of an expert by leading authorities. (laughs) Incredible. Wait, before we do, can I please read you the one for the wide window? Yes. Lemony Snicket was born before you were and is likely to die before you as well. (laughs) A studied expert in rhetorical analysis, Mr. Snicket has spent the last several eras researching the travails of the Baudelaire orphans. His findings are being published serially by HarperCollins. So in one of my favorite metafictional moments in the book happens at the end of chapter two in the reptile room where the incredibly deadly viper bites Sunny on the chin. And this is before we know that the incredibly deadly viper is harmless. And so the chapter ends and then chapter three begins. I am very, very sorry to leave you hanging like that. But as I was writing the tale of the Baudelaire orphans, I happened to look at the clock and realized I was running late for a formal dinner party given by a friend of mine. Madame du Lustro. Madame du Lustro is a good friend, an excellent detective, and a fine cook, but she flies into a rage if you arrive even five minutes later than her invitation states, so you understand that I had to dash off. And so just like those references to the actual writing and construction of the text itself is something that makes these books really notable. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, get to that wide window summary. So book three in a series of unfortunate events is called The Wide Window, and it was published in 2000. The Wide Window takes place in a gloomy town on the shore of Lake Lacrimose, which is an amazing name, Mm -hmm. and starts off with Mr. Poe putting the kids under the care of their distant relative, Aunt Josephine. And Aunt Josephine is kind, but she's 
kind of boring. We'll get into <laughs> the very specific way in which she is boring. And she's afraid of literally everything. She won't touch them. She won't let them touch the doorknob because she claims it can shatter and then one of the pieces can hit them in the eyeball. She's afraid of electricity, so the house is dark and also cold. She's afraid of realtors. And she's also afraid of the stove, which means that the children can never eat anything hot. And that leads to one of my favorite parts that we'll talk about more. But what Aunt Josephine does love, the one thing she is not afraid of and her greatest joy, is grammar. English grammar, and she has a huge library that contains only books on grammar. Josephine is especially afraid of Lake Lacrimose, which is surprising given that her house is on stilts on top of a cliff that overhangs the lake. So it's a very it's, treacherous situation architecturally. It is. The illustration is really cool. I don't yeah. know how we can explain it properly. It's not just the stilts that hang over the edge of the cliff. Like, at least half the house yes. hangs out over the cliff. I'm trying to find the illustration. Yeah. I, oh, my gosh. And then the way that Brett Helquist draws it, the stilts literally just look like a couple of, like, plywood boards nailed together. It mm -hmm. is absolutely nightmarish. Yeah. And so Josephine used to love exploring the lake with her husband, Ike, but... After he was devoured by lacrimose leeches, <laughs> she is terrified of the lake. So lacrimose leeches are an especially aggressive species of leech that will devour people if they smell any food on them. This is why it is essential that you wait at least 45 minutes after eating before you swim. And poor old dead Ike only waited 30 minutes, and that is why he died. Which sucks. Okay, I hate to victim blame, but... <laughs> I really, really do. But no one said you had to live here. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but it's not like, it's not like this is a small thing. Like, yeah. these leeches eat all of you. <laughs> Agreed. Also, Ike and Josephine knew this lake super well. You know, like, they'd explored it and they knew everything about it. They knew that the leeches were dangerous if you didn't wait... 45 minutes why would you cut why would you play so fast and loose with your own life like that <laughs> that's what i'm saying it didn't have to happen yeah i just for sure wouldn't swim in this lake ever high risk low reward you know what i'm saying that's i mean it's called lake lacrimose yeah it is implied that it is not a particularly pleasant lakeside town yeah Although they are there in the off season. I have no idea what it's like in the summer. Yeah. But I can think of better places to vacation. Like anywhere that isn't full of man-eating leeches. Mm -hmm. Also, this was my first exposure to leeches as a kid. And I definitely... Like, actually, that's not true. I knew that George Washington had been leeched to death. <laughs> but... <laughs> I had never had an up-close-and-personal encounter with a leech before, and I definitely Yeah, and you still haven't. What? I have. Oh, oh, okay. I've been bit. Wait, you have? Yeah, I've been bit by leeches. Oh, okay. Um, and they are very small and nothing like the 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 leeches it's in Lake It's true. Lacrimos. Okay, but tell me this. So my first exposure to... I have never met, met a leech. <laughs> I've never experienced a leech. But my first exposure was from, like, Addie's American Girl series mm. where they cross through um, a river and she comes out with some leeches, which is like 
really upsetting, even though it was a much more like realistic yeah. thing. And did you feel growing up that you felt as a child the way that children feel about like quicksand and the Bermuda Triangle, where they're like, this is a prevalent threat. Yeah. I really thought that those were going to be things that were going to be a part of my life. Like I was sure that I was going to have to deal with leeches fairly regularly yeah. and that the results would be catastrophic. So as we have said, Ike's death has been devastating for Aunt Josephine's psyche. Uh, and she is now like a shell of a woman. So the Baudelaire's and Aunt Josephine go to the grocery store to stock up on supplies to survive Hurricane Herman, because apparently in this universe, um, lakes can produce hurricanes, which is very distressing. <laughs> and Terrible news. While they're at the store, Aunt Josephine runs into Captain Sham, who is a man who claims to own a sailboat rental company. And the children instantly recognize Captain Sham to be Count Olaf in disguise. I just love that his name is Captain Sham. Yeah. Isn't it incredible? And I, that joke uh, definitely went over my head yeah. at age eight. Me too. But I love that Aunt Josephine, like grammar and vocab queen extraordinaire, <laughs> yeah. thinks nothing, nothing of this. Count Olaf has disguised himself by using a peg leg to conceal the tattoo on his ankle. And Aunt Josephine is thoroughly charmed by Captain Sham, which is disgusting. He's not better looking in this situation. No. He just, like, flirts with her a little bit. And I guess it's been so long since anyone has expressed any kind of interest in her that she just crumbles into a, you know, pliable, pathetic... This is a devastating lesson for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies, don't do it. Everyone needs to stop and think about who is a Captain Sham in their life. And then... <laughs> We're done with the phrase gaslight. I don't want to hear it anymore. I want to hear who is the Captain Sham in your life. <laughs> who is Captain Shamming you? <laughs> Every lady's got a Captain Sham. <laughs> <laughs> the important thing is to remove him from your life before he forces you to fake your own death. We'll get there. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's going to come up in like five minutes. Just hang tight, you guys. All right. On with the summary. So Aunt Josephine has it bad, um, and she's talking about Captain Sham all the way back to the house, and the kids are like, please, Aunt Josephine. And once again, this adult is completely useless. My favorite thing that people, the adults in the Bottler's lives, are always like, that can't be Count Olaf because his name is Captain Sham. <laughs> it is my favorite. I love it. It's so good. And doesn't real life feel like that when you're trying to talk to people sometimes? <laughs> They're like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> if he were Count Olaf, why would he have been named Captain Sham? So anyway, Aunt Josephine is completely useless, but they get back to the house and the phone rings and Violet answers it. And Olaf on the other end is like, put the old woman on the phone. So he has them put Aunt Josephine on the phone where he immediately starts pretending he's Captain Sham and she sends the Baudelaire's in the other room claiming that Captain Sham says that he has a surprise for them that he doesn't want them to overhear. Later, the kids hear a crash from the library and when they go out to investigate, they find a large hole in the big picture window and a note written by Aunt Josephine that claims she's killed herself and is leaving the children under the guardianship of Captain Sham. 
So Mr. Poe arrives, and of course he refuses to believe the Baudelaire's when they tell him that Captain Sham is really Count Olaf in disguise. At one point, Mr. Poe is like, you guys are so ridiculous. You see Count Olaf everywhere. And they're like, that's because he is everywhere. He's like, remember when you were at your Uncle Monty's, you were insistent that Stefano was really Count Olaf in disguise. And they're like, yeah, he was. Mr. Poe verifies that Captain Sham is now the orphan's legal guardian, and the children, Mr. Poe and Count Olaf, all go out to lunch at a restaurant in order to sign the guardianship paperwork and finalize the adoption. And one of my favorite things about this entire book is that the restaurant that they go to is called The Anxious Clown. This book is so funny, you guys. I don't even know what else to say. So weird. I want to find when they meet Larry, your waiter, at the Anxious Clown. I love Larry, the waiter. I also love the description of the place. Oh, can I please read what Larry says to them? Yeah. Thank you. Larry's introduction is one of my favorite parts of the book. Hello, I'm Larry, your waiter, said Larry, the Bodley Orphan's waiter. He was a short, skinny man in a goofy clown costume with a name tag pinned to his chest that read, Larry. Welcome to the Anxious Clown Restaurant, where everybody has a good time, whether they like it or not. (laughs) And then he recommends to them the extra fun special family appetizer, which is, quote, a bunch of things fried up together and served with a sauce. (laughs) Which honestly feels to me just like exactly like being at Chili's. (laughs) There are so many great restaurants in the the entire series. Mm -hmm. Like, we're going to have no choice but to focus on these. Oh, yeah. And then when they start ordering... Mr. Poe asks for, like, a cup of coffee with non-dairy creamer. And Captain Sham says that they should get a big bottle of red wine. (laughs) And just, like, by all descriptions of the anxious clown, I just... I love that they have red wine here. And the Count Olaf wants it for breakfast. Right? Like, can you imagine going to Shoney's at, like, 10 in the morning and being like, can I get a bottle of red wine? (laughs) Oh, man. So, during this time, Wall... The kids and Poe and Sham slash Olaf are at the Anxious Clown, along with my good friend Larry. The children are thinking furiously because they do not believe that Aunt Josephine wrote that note. Their initial belief was that Captain Sham murdered Josephine and forged the note. But while they were at the house, Poe suggested they test the theory by looking at a shopping list. And it was clear that the handwriting on the suicide note and the handwriting on the shopping list matched each other. So it was clearly written by Aunt Josephine, but they know that something is obviously wrong. And so they need to figure out what's going on so the children know that they need to buy themselves some time to be away from Captain Sham and Mr. Poe. And so they give themselves allergic reactions on purpose by sucking on peppermint candies that were given to them by the oblivious Mr. Poe, who did not realize that all three bottle airs are allergic to peppermints. And this moment leads to one of my favorite lines in the entire series. This is also one of my favorite lines. It is on page 102. So the Baudelaire orphans begin to eat the peppermints, and Lemony Snicket tells us, If you are allergic to a thing, it is best not to put that thing in your mouth, particularly if the thing is cats. (laughs) So the Baudelaire's do not listen to Lemony, though, and they do put the candies in their mouths, and... They get hives and swollen tongues and such. And so Mr. Poe allows the children to leave the lunch and go back to Aunt Josephine's house so they can rest. But they do not rest. 
they snoop. And so at the house, Klaus pours over on Josephine's suicide note, and he notices it has many strange misspellings and grammatical errors, which is, of course, out of character for a woman whose only joy in life was grammar. And when he collects the grammatical errors and misspellings and puts them in order, he realizes that they spell out a secret message, which is Curdled Cave. Ooh, another great name. Mm-hmm. So the children infer that Aunt Josephine is actually still alive and left them that message on purpose and is hiding in Curdled Cave. So they find a map of the lake in her house and they set out to rescue her to prove that she's still alive um, and thus save themselves from being handed off to Olaf. But when they go to the dock, they realize that the dangerous weather caused by Hurricane Herman means that the fickle ferry is not running. And the children are forced to steal one of Captain Sham's sailboats. Uh, and that's another harrowing, kind of scary <laughs> mm-hmm. chapter. And the children manage to sail through the storm to Curdled Cave, where they find Aunt Josephine waiting for them. And there's an excited reunion. Josephine explains that Count Olaf threatened her and told her she had to write the note. But Josephine was confident that the children would be able to crack the code hidden within it. So the children are overjoyed. They think that they're saved. And then while Aunt Josephine is happy to see the children, she (laughs) reveals that she expected them to bring more provisions because she believed that the four would live in the cave forever. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, obviously we're not going out there. I'm too scared. (laughs) And they're like, hello? (laughs) And they're only able to convince her to leave when they inform her that there is a for sale sign in front of Curdle Cave, meaning that it will soon be visited by bum bum bum, realtors. Oh dear. So the Baudelaire's and Aunt Josephine begin sailing towards shore. However, they are not in the boat very long before lacrimose leeches start circling the boat. And it is then when Aunt Josephine admits that she recently ate a banana. I don't know why she didn't think to disclose that information before she climbed in the boat. It's incredibly frustrating. And the Baudelaire's are, as we've established, kind and generous. And so they don't throw her overboard. The leeches can smell the food on Josephine and they become more violent. They start breaking holes into the side of the boat. Yeah, the leeches are weirdly powerful. Yeah, they're extremely big and strong and hideous. So the boat is sinking and Violet knows that she needs to construct some sort of invention to save them. So she tries to construct a signaling device in order to alert other sailors that she and her family need help. And so she uses... Her inventing skills to refract light and catch some fabric on fire, wave it around, bang a metal bucket. And the children and Josephine are so relieved when another boat comes to rescue them, but are very dismayed when they realize who is sailing the boat. And the boat is, in fact, being sailed by Captain Sham, a.k.a. Olaf. It really kind of mirrors the scene in book one where... Violet finally climbs up the tower with her grappling hook. Yeah, you're right. And then she realizes that it's, um, that she's climbed right into the clutches of the hook-handed man. Damn it. This happens to the kids almost nonstop. So Captain Sham brings them aboard and (laughs) tells them, you know, I'm going to throw Aunt Josephine in the lake and bring the kids back. And horrifyingly, Aunt Josephine begs for her own life and basically offers up the kids in exchange. It's a really sad scene. She's like, please, like, don't throw me overboard. I'll change my name. I'll leave the country. Like, you can have the kids. No one will ever find me again. And the kids are like, what the fuck? (laughs) And it's here that you realize that Aunt Josephine is, in addition to 
being cowardly is also selfish. And it's just, I don't know, it's a really devastating part. It reminds me a lot of the part where Justice Strauss is useless, you know, mm-hmm. where it's just self-preservation uh, wins out and it's very sad. And then Aunt Josephine, being a complete buffoon, makes a comment correcting Count Olaf's grammar and he rightfully, at this point, I think, <laughs> throws her into the water where she is promptly devoured. And then he sails to shore with the orphans. Yep. And so the children try to explain to Mr. Poe that Aunt Josephine was still alive and that Count Olaf just murdered her, but Mr. Poe does not listen to them, of course. And it's only after Sonny bites Count Olaf's wooden peg leg and breaks it in half and reveals his ankle tattoo that Mr. Poe finally believes that Captain Sham is, in fact, Count Olaf. However, Count Olaf and his henchman are able to make a quick getaway by locking Mr. Poe and the children behind a gate on the dock, and that is where the book ends. So frustrating. This shit again. And again, Mr. Poe spends a lot of time talking to Count Olaf. They're, they always do this whenever they get him. They always tell him, they're like, you are a terrible man and we've caught you and there's no way you're getting away. And they go on this whole long spiel. <laughs> yeah. And then nothing comes of it. They've, they've got to stop talking, man. It's incredibly And isn't that just a metaphor for life? Yes. Stop talking and do something. One of my favorite little details in this book is, you know, since Aunt Josephine doesn't use electricity, she can't prepare any warm meals. And so she eats a lot of cold soups. At one point, they have lime stew, (laughs) which just sounds awful. I don't think as a kid I was able to fully process what that might entail. How abysmal that idea is. Stew implies that it is, like, chunky. Right. You know, it is not soup. Yeah. It is stew. And stew is no toy. It's it's giving me margarita, but with, like, flour. Oh, you know, yeah. Some kind of thickening agent. Uh-huh. And maybe some peel in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a part where, like, somebody's, they mention that, like, somebody nibbles on a peel. <laughs> this book has a lot of, like, what Lemony Snicket does best. I guess all his books do, but this is just the one I read the most recently. And he just excels at this absurdist humor that it really comes out of nowhere. Or if you've read enough of the books, you realize that he has this sort of like ABC pattern. I love the one where he's talking about the Baudelaire's fear seeing Hurricane Herman hit. And he says, I've seen many amazing things in my long and troubled life history. I've seen a series of corridors built entirely out of human skulls. I've seen a volcano erupt inside a wall of lava crawling toward a small village. I have seen a woman I love picked up by an enormous eagle and flown to its high mountain nest. (laughs) And that's also a bit of foreshadowing because we find out about those eagles in Slippery Slope. We do. Yeah. I mean, he's just the king of just this strange, absurdist humor for kids. I love this bit where the Baudelaire's are trying to figure out how they're going to escape or how they're going to find Josephine without the ferry and they decide that they're going to steal a sailboat. And the book, the book series talks a lot about morality and the law and when is the right time to do something and when is the wrong time. And they decide that they have no choice. And Snicket says, stealing, of course, is a crime and a very impolite thing to do. But like most impolite things, it is excusable under certain circumstances. Stealing is not excusable if, for instance, you're in a museum and you decide that a certain painting would look better in your house and you simply grab the painting and take it there. (laughs) But if you were very, very hungry and you had no way of obtaining money, it might be excusable to grab the painting, take it to your house, and eat it. (laughs) 
And then I promise I'm almost done, but I just have one more thing that I love. So Aunt Josephine is saying, like, obviously he's not Count Olaf, because if he were, his name wouldn't be Captain Sham. And she says, Mr. Poe told me that Count Olaf has a tattoo on his left ankle and one eyebrow over his eye. Captain Sham doesn't have a left ankle and only has one eye. I can't believe you would dare to disagree with a man who has eye problems. I have eye problems, Klaus says, pointing to his glasses. And you're disagreeing with me. <laughs> All right, are we ready to move on? So now it is time for our next segment. And now a word from us kids, where we share reviews posted by kids online about the book. And so we'll Woo-hoo! start with a few reviews of The Bad Beginning. These come from Dogo Books. This book had so many reviews on Dogo. I think it had a lot of interest in it because of the movie and the Netflix adaptation. A lot of the, the kids writing the reviews mentioned that they found the book because of the adaptations of it, which I think is great. The first review I wanted to read was from someone whose username is Big Bookworm, which I think is so cute. cute. And they said, loved this book. Ever get tired of hearing happily ever after and how everything is turning out great for the characters? Well, this is the book for you. It is sad, but extraordinary book. Recommend ages nine and a half and up. Five stars. So if you're nine, don't even think about it. Yeah, don't fucking touch it. It's going to be six months for you. Yeah. So hold tight. You'll get your turn. (laughs) I love so many of these uh, reviews have kids who very specifically mention like half ages. And there's a very clear fixation on one's own age and a disdain for people who might be the grade below them. Mm -hmm. All right. Book fan 2008. I guess this was written in 2008. I think they might have been born in 2008. Oh, don't say that. (laughs) Bookfan2008 says, Dear all readers, have you read this book? I hope so. And if not, no problem. Here is some info about this sad but very good book. This book mostly has unfortunate events. This book is suspenseful. Sorry, suspenseful and knows how to hook the readers into reading the book farther until the end. This book talks all about the very beginning of the unfortunate life of the Baldenaire orphans. <laughs> One day, when the three siblings, Sunny, the youngest, who loves to bite things, Klaus, the middle child, who loves to read, and Violet, the oldest, who is great at inventing, go to a deserted beach alone. Soon during their trip, a nice but weird man named Mr. Poe tells them the horrible news. He says that their parents have died in a horrible fire and are sadly not alive anymore. (laughs) Okay, give me a moment. Mr. Poe tells them the horrible news. He says that their parents have died in a horrible fire and are sadly not alive anymore. (laughs) The Baldineras are shocked and feel horrible hearing this bad news. Mr. Poe also says they have found a far guardian named Count Olaf, who agrees to be their legal guardian. The kid have never heard of him and aren't very fond of going. But, as I said, this is an unfortunate book with unfortunate events. The very next day, the orphans drive over to Count Olaf's house. But Count Olaf isn't at all what they thought. Count Olaf is plain horrible and evil. As soon as Mr. Poe leaves his house, Count Olaf shows, starts showing... His evil side. I, I want to be clear, I am reading this word for word. First of all, the Boldeneris 
have only one tiny, and I mean tiny, bed for all three of them. And also, Count Olaf makes them down the hardest chores. For example, cut wood and make a full dinner for Count Olaf and his very bad acting crew. The Boldeniris, at this, okay, you know what this is? When I give a reading assessment to children, like pals or a running record, if they mispronounce a name the first time, it's an error, but after that, it stops being an error as long as they continue to mispronounce it in the same way. So I'm just going to give this to BookFan2008. This is no longer a mispronunciation or an error. This They are just renamed. These kids are now the Boldeniris. I love it because so. it sounds Spanish. <laughs> it does. So the Boldeniris are having a horrible time with Count Olaf, as far as you can see. But basically, only more horrible things happen. I am not going to give away much more because it would spoil the story. But I hope you decide to read this book because most readers would enjoy this book. And I recommend the book even more if you love sad, depressing, and unfortunate stories. Yes. I give this book 5 out of 5, and I hope you do too. Thank you for reading my review, and keep on reading. BookFan2008, 5 stars. All right. I'm sorry, you have to read the next one. I'm literally tired. I need to take several sips of water because that one just did me in. <laughs> okay, this review is written by Ekatseros. They said, This book is about how these Baudelaire children are at the beach one day. Then someone comes and tells them that their house has burned into flames. So they try to find out who did it. Since That's not actually true. They don't do that no, at they all. they don't. They never really try to find out who did it's it. It's not even slightly a plot point. In fact, they don't even... The word arson is never mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Since their parents died in the fire, they have to have a family member take care of them, and it was Count Olaf, but he was strange, and they have to find out how the fire happened and how they're related to Count Olaf. Again, <laughs> none of that happens. They are valid questions, like how did the fire happen no, and how great. are they related to Count Olaf? I think the Baudelaires probably should have asked themselves those questions, but they don't. This is my favorite part of the review. Then they say, I connected to this book by sometimes things happen and I get really sad, but things happen for a reason. I gave this book a four star rating because there was no happy ending. <laughs> it's also funny that he gives the book four stars or they give the book four stars because there's no happy ending because it's like you are guaranteed that from the very first page. He literally says warned. there's no happy beginning, no happy ending, and very few happy things in the middle. So if that's not your cup of tea... That one's on you. I'm so sorry. I am sorry that you related to the sad things that happened to you. I'm sorry you get really sad. You know what? I don't know that this person read all of it. So this next review comes from Bean Boy. <laughs> he says, the first installment to a series of unfortunate events is filled with twisting plots, keeping you reading on and on and on until the book is finished, making you want book two. Funny, in a dark and light way, is one way to describe this book, but also quite sad because some orphans in the world get treated in this cruel fashion. <laughs> I, I, not exactly like this, though. Yeah, I will say that the plight of orphans globally is, <laughs> yes, very unfortunate. But the specificities of the Baudelaire situation, I would argue, is probably pretty unique. Orphans but I, I like, I, I appreciate Bean Boy's empathy. Yeah, it's a, it's a positive making character Making some real-world connections here. And that's a special thing when you're a young reader. Yes. 
And so then he, he says, I personally enjoyed the way the orphan children, and then in parentheses, he lists their names, Violet, Daisy, and Klaus, <laughs> outsmart Count Olaf and stay brave throughout the entire series. It's just so funny to me that Bean Boy loves these books and does not know Sonny's name. <laughs> it's not like Sarah or Susie. Like, it's literally just like, he was like, maybe another flower. <laughs> Violet, Daisy, and Klaus. <laughs> Iconic. I don't know who your your favorite character is, but mine is definitely Daisy. Daisy's actually the twin that Sunny ate in the womb. <laughs> so he says, I personally enjoyed the way orphan children, Violet, Daisy, and Klaus, outsmart Count Olaf and stay brave throughout the entire series. It demonstrates that children can always surprise you and come up with wonderful ideas. I recommend this series to ages seven and up and give it five stars. My favorite book in the series is The Airsats Elevator, book six. They have good taste. Yeah, that is a a good book. So clearly Bean Boy has read at least six of these books. He's he's reading and he's like, who the fuck is Sunny? (laughs) That's all for book one. Although I'm sure that there are plenty of other gems out there. If you were a child listening to our podcast and you're sad that your review was not included please let us know and maybe be funnier next time you guys ready to hear some reviews for the reptile room yeah wolf children great name this is a collaborative review which is maybe why it's wolf children instead of wolf child that makes sense um so anyway wolf children our first reviewer says nine-year-old best book series ever but count all off is a jerk (laughs) lemony snicket has lots of great books but this series is my favorite seven-year-old i liked it because we read it together. That's cute. 12-year-old, it is the best book series. Lemony Sticket is a great author. Oh, and now another party. Mom, reading this series together as a family was incredible. We paused and discussed theories so much. We did end up watching both the film and Netflix show after. Neither do the series justice, but it was fun to see how film portrayed our favorite series of all time. That is so cute. I know. I love that. I love that the youngest is seven and the oldest is 12. And normally, I don't think you could pay 12-year-olds and 7-year-olds siblings to spend time with each other. Mm. Oh, that's very, very sweet. Uh, Meanwhile, Jimzonia, love that name, says, remember, this is for book two. I like Stefano in the story. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favorite books. There are many, there's so many cool people in it. They had just started... (laughs) To have a happy life. Five stars. One uh, review from Team Stefano over here. Yeah. That that one kind of caught me off guard, I'm going to be honest. I also love this review by Albina200. It's just one sentence, and it says, This book is another sad thing, and Count Ulf did it. Frowny face. <laughs> Oh my god. That darn Count Ol. <laughs> Classic Count Ol. Doing sad things. Oh my god. And I love it. It's so world weary. This book is another sad thing. And you know the stinker behind it. It's that scoundrel. That rapscallion. Count Olf. All right, moving on. Eliza says, I read it from a hunch that I would love it. It's totally awesome. The Baudelaire orphans, like always, loses they are relative due to Omar. <laughs> I have to reread it. <laughs> I'm sorry. The Baudelaire orphans, like always, loses they are relative due to Omar. 
If you are in a mood to read bad things happening to people, I recommend you read this book. Five stars. <laughs> We're just the news. <laughs> yeah. Budding sociopath. Sarah, do you want... Do you want to round us off with what Lazy123 has to say? Yes, so Lazy123 gives another one-sentence review. She says, I think it is awesome, but Count Olaf scares me. Me too. Short and sweet, baby. Me too, Lazy. Who the fuck is Olaf? I'm afraid of Omar. (laughs) I'm afraid of Ulf. (laughs) We also have some reviews from The Wide Window. And Lazy123 makes another appearance. So you might remember Lazy123 from being scared of Count Olaf in book two, but it didn't stop her. Did not stop her from reading book three. She tells us it is so scary because somebody dies by getting eaten by leeches. So remember, go in the water one hour after you have eaten. Oh, Lazy. That's Lazy's takeaway. So cute. Oh, poor Lazy. That's so cute. And it doesn't even have to be one hour. It can be 45 minutes. But Lazzy is that careful. Apples 101 says, I read book one in Battle of the Books and found this in my teacher's classroom. Three exclamation points. I'm reading it now and it is still very interesting. I love the way the author expresses in the beginning how we should not read this book. And I just kept on reading it. I'm a huge fan of reading, and I feel that it needs to sound like there's a real voice talking as I'm reading. That is so cute. I know. I have one additional review from Common Sense Media. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids get very hung up with morality in their reading, which I love. This particular child, no username and unfortunately no age, said, Other people should read this book because it is a good book. Example, when they give you a grammar lesson. But also, there are some bad things, too. Like they steal a boat. And there's a little hitting and biting, which the kids mostly do, and that might get the kids scared. (laughs) I'm sorry, that is pure, like, victim blaming. Everything that she cites as being scary or immoral is, like, the things the kids do to save their lives. And I love that it's not, like, the potential suicide and the murder and the uh, blood-sucking, flesh-eating leeches. It's just, like, there is a little kicking and biting. And that is distressing. So you've heard from some kids what it is about these books that they like. And you've heard from some former kids what it is about these books that they that they like. That's me and Terry. Now it's time to hear from an academic by the name of, and I swear this is his real name, Bruce Butt. It's such a great name. He published an article in Children's Literature and Education, Volume 34, Number 4, in 2003. And the article is called, He's Behind You. Reflections on Repetition and Predictability in Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. And it's a really interesting article. Very insightful. Thank you, Mr. Butt. Bruce Butt says, (laughs) Each of the novels possesses the same curiously timeless mood, despite incidental references to cars, telephones, and even computers. Handler's stories occupy a bizarre world not dissimilar to that depicted in the suburban gothic of Tim Burton's cinematic fairy tale Edward Scissorhands, 1990. Presented to us in each installment of the series is a mixture of not quite contemporary modernity and a heavily stylized choice of characters and settings that seems curiously familiar and yet unplaceable at the same time. Buildings are improbably located and architecturally implausible, as if taken from the pages of a Dr. Seuss story, 
whilst names resonate with both literary and wider cultural illusion. As well as the Salinger connection or the Baudelaire orphans themselves, literary readers might smile as they read of Mr. Poe and Dr. Georgina Orwell, and such locations as the Kafka Cafe and the Proofrock Preparatory School, or an auction for Lot 49. They might also ask what all this rather self-satisfied name-checking actually amounts to. Because it's funny. It is Drop funny. the attitude. Yeah. I agree with the rest of what he said. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think that the whimsy of the books is really important because it acts as a counterweight to all of the horribly sad, frightening things that happen. Yes, absolutely. There's a level of suspense in the books, too, because you're trying to figure out where the heck you are and, mm-hmm. like, what the rules are that govern this universe. Oh, yes. I mean, we'll get to the seventh book, but there's a point where the kids are about to be, like, executed. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very unnerving, you know, you, because anything could happen. Right. And that, and so even though the, the plot structures for the first six books are quite formulaic, they're not predictable because, like, in the next book that we'll be t- reading for the next episode, the children's guardian is a mill where they are, like, employees. Yes. <laughs> what? But they're not employees. They aren't paid. Nobody's paid. We'll yeah, get there. Right. I love it so much. They're like serfs. Yeah. All right, so time for our next segment. The book was better. The series of unfortunate events have been adapted twice. Um, There was a film in 2004, and there's also a Netflix series that was released um, between 2017 and 2019. We're going to be saving our conversation about the Netflix series for future episodes because we have a lot. It covers the entire series. Right, it covers the entire series, whereas the film only covers books one through three. And is therefore a perfect fit for this episode. So that particular adaptation, the film adaptation, was released in 2004 and was directed by Brad Silberling. It covers books one through three and actually has a, a pretty great cast. It has Jim Carrey, Meryl Streep, Jude Law as Lemony Snicket, Jennifer Coolidge, <laughs> which I don't think I even knew, Catherine O'Hara, Bill Connolly, Liam Aiken, Emily Browning, Luis Guzman. And got pretty positive reviews and had a lot of praise for its production value and performances, um, in particular for Jim Carrey, who does really sell Olaf, but is not, he, I, in my opinion, goes far more for the humor route, making parts of the scarier elements fall a little bit more flat. So the film was criticized for its comical tone and short length. So it only focused on the first three books in the series and made some changes to the plot material. In condensing it, it it basically kind of makes the first book happen after the events of the second and third. In the movie, the first thing Olaf does when he gets custody of the kids is he tries to kill them by putting them (laughs) in a locked car on a train track. And they get out, and then Mr. Poe is like, you cannot take care of these kids, so I'm sending them to live with Uncle Monty. So then the book two events happen, the book three events happen, and then I guess they're sent back to Olaf, and then that's when the whole marvelous marriage and the ending happens. So there are some changes, but it has a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. It also won the Academy Award for Best Makeup. It did? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. Nathan Rabin from the AD Club 
said that the movie was, quote, a sick joke of a film that realizes the best children's entertainment doesn't hide from the bleaker side of life, but plunges into the void and respects kids enough to assume that they can handle it. Which I'm I, with you there, Nathan. I, I think that's with, fair. Yeah, I agree with that. Similar um, to the book series. Yeah. It does It does have a... I love the start of the film. Uh, it does have some really cool, like, animation. And it also starts with this little thing in the beginning. Do you remember what I'm talking about? It's like the happiest elf in the... Cra- it's got yeah. very... It's got, like, stop motion, mm-hmm. uh, like, clay figurines. And then it all just sort of stops and the lights go off. And they're like, this is not the movie. <laughs> and yeah. as, as a kid, I was shook. I really, I, was, I saw the movie in theaters, and I remember thinking, You did? Yeah, and I remember thinking, like, oh my god, we walked into the wrong theater. Like, this is not the movie that, <laughs> that we were supposed to be seeing. I, I feel bad, because I think I have this sort of gut reaction to the movie, because the books are so much better. Uh, and I think the movie can stand on its own okay, but I think I am a little bit hard on it, because the books are so superior. Ty Burr in the Boston Globe said, Director Brad Silberling has essentially made a Tim Burton movie without the weird shafts of adolescent pain. At the same time, Silberling's not a hack like Chris Columbus, and Snicket has more zip and inspired film craft than the first two Harry Potter films. The film's no masterpiece, but at least you're in the hands of people who know what they're doing. The movie, like the books, flatters children in innate sense that the world is not a perfect place, and that anyone who insists otherwise is trying to sell you something. How you deal with the cognitive dissonance of a $125 million Hollywood picture telling you this is up to you. So he's a, he's a little bit crabby. He is. <laughs> I, I don't know. Did you want them to spend less on the movie? Okay. okay, it's time for me to complain, though. I think that my first association is always with the fucking outfits. The style of the 2004 movie takes the Victorian gothic, but like ramps it up kind of in the wrong way. And Jess goes, like, full gothic. Mm-hmm. Violet's wearing fingerless gloves. It kind of takes away from this interesting sort of charm, I feel, of this time and place. The kids in the book wear the same outfit all the time, and it's got this very, like, 1920s kind of street clothes look to it. I think it's great. And I think it's cowardice that they didn't just recreate those outfits because they're great. And I think it makes the movie look a lot more campy than it needs to be. Yeah, there's, like, that. so many buckles on all the dresses right it's very 2004 and like also klaus doesn't wear glasses oh he doesn't sorry i didn't mean to shout but no klaus does not wear glasses you see him have glasses on his face for like five seconds in the very beginning and then he like puts them away and he never wears them again that's terrible i know so that's why they could only do books one through three because book four just couldn't have happened yeah book four is pretty centrally relying on klaus having glasses (laughs) Plus, that also ruins the infamous wide window line about disagreeing with a man with eye problems. Yeah. All right, I have to look up a picture. Yeah, Violet wears this, it's a truly horrendous outfit. Violet wears this strange black puff sleeve dress. Oh, the puff with these, sleeves. Like, yes, with these like fishnet sleeves. Mm-hmm. So, and then Klaus's outfit isn't even that bad. It's just like a sweater with a collared shirt and could work. But then Violet also has this very like 2004 goth haircut it's like very steampunk yes thank you that's the word i was looking for it is steampunk i think it spoils a lot of the visual effects of the movie what are you gonna do nobody hired me to work on it i don't know why probably because i was uh nine but (laughs) i just hate being overlooked (laughs) yeah now it's time for our most 
unfortunate segment in the series of unfortunate events. <laughs> which is This your- is the part that has a very unhappy beginning and and very few happy things in the middle. In fact, none happy things in the middle. Yes. So this it's time for your fave is problematic. If you Google Daniel Handler, you're bound to come up with some information that will make you unhappy. So um, there's a section on Daniel Handler's Wikipedia page that's called Remark About Race. And so right off the bat, you know that's going <laughs> to suck. So at the National Book Awards ceremony in November 2014, Handler made a racist remark after author Jacqueline Woodson was presented with the National Book Award for Young People's Literature for her book Brown Girl Dreaming. And after she won the award, Handler was the MC, and so he came up to the mic and made a joke about how Jacqueline Woodson is allergic to watermelon, and Jacqueline Woodson is a black woman. Daniel Handler makes this joke about how he thinks it's, I guess, ironic, I don't know, that Jacqueline Woodson is a black woman who's allergic to watermelon. He says that he told her that she should put that in a book, and she said, you put that in a book. And then Daniel Handler goes... Uh, He tells the audience that he told her, I'm only writing a book about a black girl who was allergic to watermelon if I get a blurb from you, Cornell West, Toni Morrison, and Barack Obama saying, this guy's okay, this guy's fine. Which is just, like, obviously racist and not funny. Also, November 2014 is, like, in the middle of the first rise of protests around Black Lives Matter. Yeah, that's around the time of the Ferguson uprising, so... Yeah, like, (laughs) what What the fuck, man? On the Thursday after the award show, Daniel Handler tweeted, My job at last night's National Book Awards was to shine a light on tremendous writers, including Jacqueline Woodson, and not to overshadow their achievements with my own ill-conceived attempts at humor. I clearly failed, and I'm sorry. And then um, on Friday, he tweeted, My remarks on Wednesday night at the National Book Awards were monstrously inappropriate and, yes, racist. It would be heartbreaking for the National Book Awards conversation to focus on my behavior instead of great books. So can we do this? Let's donate to hashtag we need diverse books to hashtag celebrate Jackie. I'm in for $10,000 and matching your money for 24 hours up to $100,000. It's very uncomfortable. The video is on YouTube if you want to watch it. I don't really know what else to say except for oof. But people smarter than me had some great responses. Alyssa Rosenberg from the Washington Post said, there's a long running conversation about a lack of diversity in young adult fiction, the genre in which Handler himself works, which makes Woodson's win a significant occasion as well as a joyful one. And in an environment that already limits the number of stories about young characters of color, Handler relied on an anecdote that riffed on an exceptionally old stereotype. Rather than celebrating Woodson's creativity, he found a way to define her by her relationship to old tropes about what black people eat. What is uncomfortable about this story is not simply that it's about African-Americans and watermelon, but that it is an attempt at self-flattery. In the anecdote, Woodson tries to deflect Handler's suggestion that she should write about her allergy. And in response, Handler tries to show off how racially aware he is. The man in the story knows that he could not write about the supposed black taste for watermelon without being exoriated as racist. The man telling the story is eager to show off that he knows the limits of what he has the authority to speak about and what jokes it is okay and not okay for him to make. Yeah, there's something self, very self-serving and gross about the joke, too, because it immediately takes the spotlight off of Jacqueline Woodson, who's an incredible writer and very accomplished and just had this wonderful honor. And then 
the joke is that he knows that making the joke is racist. And so he thinks that it's not racist because he's showing you that self-awareness, but it's, that's not how it works. It still comes across as very offensive and also just completely inappropriate. I don't know why it even crossed his mind to say this anecdote. It in no way references anything that Jacqueline Woodson has done. No. It doesn't reference her writing. And so a little while after the National Book Awards, Jacqueline Woodson herself wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called The Pain of the Watermelon Joke. It's really a wonderful op-ed, very much worth a read. And she writes about how her childhood dream of becoming a writer was fueled by her desire to write literature that was representative of her and her family. Um, She talks about seeing racist caricatures of black people with watermelon as a kid and being really horrified by them and wanting to add something to young people's literature that is real and accurate and true and empowering of people like herself instead of racist and oppressive. And so she says in her op-ed, as I walked away from the stage to a standing ovation after my acceptance speech, it was the last place in the world I thought I'd hear the watermelon joke directed by the MC Daniel Handler at me. And then she goes on to write that she and Daniel have been friends for years and she was astonished when he brought up her allergy before the National Book Award audience. Uh, She says, quote, in a few short words, the audience and I were asked to take a step back from everything I've ever written, a step back from the power and meaning of the National Book Award, lest we forget, lest I forget where I came from. And making light of that deep and troubled history, he showed that he believed we were at a point where we could laugh about it all. His historical context, unlike my own, came from a place of ignorance. So what a devastating thing to have happen to you at a moment when you should only be feeling joy and pride. Yeah. And, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about the surprise of it happening in 2014. Is I guess it's not surprising. This is this man's response to that was his attempt to show himself as being racially aware Mm. in this way. So... Like, he he later in his tweet acknowledges that the comment was racist, but I'm sure when he said it, he probably thought that he was proving how not racist he is, which just is very pathetic Yeah, and shows a real lack of awareness of how racism functions. Yeah, it's just incredibly gross. And speaking of incredibly gross... Woo! um, We ain't done yet! (laughs) Daniel Handler slash Lemony Snicket has also had allegations of inappropriate sexual comments made against him. So these started to crop up or at least gain traction and get attention in um, 2018 during the Me Too movement. Vulture published an article from February 2018 called Lemony Snicket Accused of Making Lewd Comments About Female Authors. Uh, The article is written by D. Lockett. She wrote, multiple female authors have accused Lemony Snicket, the writer behind a series of unfortunate events, of making sexually inappropriate comments, according to the Pacific Standard. The allegations against Snicket, whose real name is Daniel Handler, first surfaced last week after he signed a pledge launched by YA author Gwenda Bond, stating that authors would not attend conferences that don't adopt and enforce harassment policies in the wake of Me Too. Under Handler's name, author Kate Messner shared a story of a 2013 encounter she had with him on a train to a writer's conference. 
She claims Handler interrupted a conversation she was having with another author, asking if she was from the Midwest. Are you a virgin too? He allegedly shouted at her from the back of the train. She wrote that he later commented in front of other authors and their spouses. These children's books events always turn into orgies. Other women commented under her story with similar incidents. And it keeps going. So author Roseanne Perry claims that Handler made a, quote, crass and belittling joke about her at a 2014 book event, which prompted a teenage girl who overheard the comment to tell him off. And she wrote that Handler then said something crass to the teenager when told that he has to, quote, stop talking like that to women. He sauntered off without acknowledgement or apology. And his accusers have been quick to distinguish this behavior from more overtly predatory conduct, but still talk about how this behavior has made them feel small in professional settings. And the combination of Handler's power and fame and his habitual joking about sex reveals consistent conduct that has had a harmful impact on multiple female children's writers and children's librarians. And D. Lockett goes on to tell us that What's more, in an industry where most creators are functionally freelancers who rely on networking and gatekeepers, Handler's behavior should be understood as workplace sexual harassment. It is. Handler has responded to the accusations in a comment on Bond's pledge apologizing to the women. He says, It has never been my wish to insult any of my professional colleagues. My whole life, my sense of humor has not been for everyone. That's a cop-out. I'll get more into it. And my books continue to be regarded by a segment of the population as inappropriate. I take seriously the responsibility of my visibility and have always thought that treating all of my colleagues the same was the best way to dispel the unease that can come from a competitive or self-conscious environment. I am listening and willing to listen. I am learning and willing to learn. That is bullshit. Your books (laughs) have not drawn criticism for sexual harassment. That's not why your books draw criticism. Your sense of humor in your books is not the same sense of humor that you are conveying to these women. So don't even try it. And I'm so disappointed because I I have said it a thousand times. I love this book series. I think this man is a gifted writer of children's books and a great comic. And that is just such a victimized, self-victimizing take. My sense of humor isn't for everyone. Like my whole life, I haven't been appreciated by certain segments of the population. Like, what, women? (laughs) Yeah. You don't talk that way in your books. You know you don't talk that way in your books. You know your books are beloved by women and girls. So, no. I'm really disappointed. Yeah. It sucks. This happened around the same time that some other YA and children's authors were also accused of sexual harassment or misconduct. So, that includes... Sherman Alexie, who wrote The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, James Dashner, who wrote Maze Runner, and Jay Asher, who wrote 13 Reasons Why. And, and I think maybe that's also why some of Daniel Handler slash Lemony Snicket's behavior wasn't as headline-grabbing news, because there were other... There was so many... I mean, I don't know if you guys remember 2018, but there was so <laughs> many men who were being accused of this stuff that honestly like I think a lot of people <laughs> got accused of stuff and we a lot of people didn't even notice it sucks and it's still not nearly as bad as what other women in the film and book and television industry have experienced 
that kind of behavior has to be held accountable because that kind of behavior and talking that way about women and making women feel that way and flexing this power dynamic in that way and reacting dismissively to being told your mistakes all feeds into this culture that allows serious sexual assault to happen. Right. And that's what, to my mind, makes his response so incredibly disappointing because it's it's not... This was not sexual assault. This was something that with the right approach to your own behavior, a person can come back from and grow from. Right. But he did not have the right response. It's frustrating, yeah, because it comes back to how you respond to it because I think the unfortunate truth is that a lot of successful men in most fields have made women around them uncomfortable with inappropriate sexual jokes. That's an experience that I've had in the workplace. That's an experience that I think a lot of women have had in the workplace. And it doesn't mean that like everyone who does it needs to be, I don't know, have their entire career taken away from them or anything, but how they, how, how they respond to it when being called out is really important and his response was obviously lacking. I think any one of us can point out a person in our life who we know behaved in a way like Handler has mm -hmm. and who we now know is a better person yeah. who we know has looked at their behavior and made changes like I know people like that I've you made know this. I mean I haven't made I haven't done what he's done <laughs> but certainly I'm sure I've made jokes that were inappropriate me too absolutely and it's doable to come back from these things and to own up to your mistakes and to recognize the place that you are coming from and the damage that you do when you behave in this way. And I, yeah, it just really pissed me off when I read that, that he talked about how his books are have been criticized for being inappropriate. Because it's like, that's not the conversation we're having. Exactly. No one was saying that you should be in trouble because your books talk about murder and villainy. That's not at all what was being brought up and so for and you, you to know redirect, that we are not saying that right and so for you to redirect the conversation in that way is disingenuous it's unfair to the people who have defended your books because that's not what we were defending me liking these books is not a free pass for you to be rude to teenage girls and yell at people across the train right. about their sexual proclivities the books are largely free of the kind of grossness that is mentioned in these articles, I will say that one aspect of the book that really surprised me on reread was the way that he talks about Count Olaf's comrades and how one of his comrades, like there's like the hook-handed man and the woman with white powder on their face or whatever. And then there's the person who looks like neither a man nor a woman. And that's like their hallmark signature trait. And it's presented as something terrifying and kind of monstrous, this idea that your gender identity might not be easy for an observer mm -hmm. to easily discern that that is like somehow villainous that I that really and also here yeah. for this person with the pronoun it instead of he or she or they so it's pretty that I think not... there's also a lot of fat phobia around that character too because yes. they are described part of their monstrosity is also meant to do with their weight right and it's implied that their weight is in part what makes their their sex or their gender not discernible that's a really good point yeah so it's not to say i don't want to say that the books are like completely free of the kind of bigotry that we're talking about because they're not it's, it was funny to me it was like wow i can't believe that your name is um daniel handler because it sounds like you could really use one 
(laughs) (laughs) But this scandal didn't really seem to, I mean, to what I can tell, it doesn't really seem to have much of a discernible effect on his career. Pacific Standard wrote an article called How Will Publishing Deal with Lemony Snicket Amid Hashtag Me Too? This article was written by David M. Perry. He makes a lot of great points. At one point he says, as much as individual bad actors need to be called out, Tracy Baptiste, an author of both fiction and nonfiction aimed at children and young adults, wants us to consider structural issues, particularly at the intersections of capitalism, toxic masculinity, and racism. In an email, she lays out the ways in which these three forces combine. She says, quote, men in kid lit are at the top of the earnings ladder in every aspect of publishing. While the majority of people in publishing houses are women, the people at the top are men. And even though there are far more women writing kid lit than men, huge tours, major book deals, and keynotes at national conferences disproportionately go to men. And of course, money means power. When women do complain, they are examined much more closely than the men. As Baptiste writes, quote, they are told they're exoriating the men when their comments are straightforward and pretty kind in some cases. The thing is, you can tell the commenters are nervous. I think that makes a really good point because, yes, children's literature and YA literature, there's tons of women in the field, tons of women writers, tons of women editors, but most of the people making most of the money are men. Uh, it's like that with everything. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just, I think all the time about when, when makeup, the whole makeup industry is defended because the people at the tippy top the highest earners in fashion mm-hmm. and makeup and cosmetics and skin. The people at the top of these ladders are men. Sorry. I'm just... <sighs> and you know what makes me the saddest out of all of this is that as a kid growing up reading these books, I think these books were uniquely great in how they handle men and women and boys and girls and what we can and can't do you know like in terms of gender roles the fact that violet is an inventor sunny's whole thing is biting like it's a you know and i remember there's another thing that i even wanted to make a note about is that sometimes he'll he did this thing that i always was aware of because it would kind of catch me off guard where he will drop unexpected pronouns in certain areas, and it's not a big thing, you know, but if you were a kid, I think it's fairly noticeable. It was one of my favorite lines in The Wide Window where Aunt Josephine is defending Captain Sham's identity because it's on his business card. Snicket says, anyone can go to print shop, go to a print shop and have cards made that say anything they like. The King of Denmark can order business cards that say he sells golf balls. Your dentist can order business cards that say she is your grandmother. And it's something like that, you know, using the pronoun pronoun she for a dentist when we typically, our first association with people in the medical field is generally men, especially in a book that came out in, what, 2000? Yeah. So that's why it just sucks, you know? Yeah. (laughs) You'd have higher expectations for someone who wrote a character like Violet's. Mm -hmm. Your fave is problematic. All right, so... On that real bummer of a note, we do want to take (laughs) a few minutes to talk about what can be learned from the books. One thing about the books that I found really wonderful as a kid was the emphasis on the importance of reading and celebrating knowledge and the idea that you can 
by learning more, you can find solutions to your problems. I think that's a really good and message. And become for a better person. Yeah. And I, and I do think that the books definitely, like, run the risk of being pretentious <laughs> or even elitist in this Evil idea that, Evil people like, are not well-read. Right. That, like, good people are well-read and bad people are not, which obviously there's a lot of, like, classism and such in there. But as a kid, I, I was always excited when I saw, you know, like, two-thirds of the way through the through the um, story and Klaus picks up a book and you're like, oh, this is going to be good. They're going to yeah. learn something. They're, they're going to be able to save themselves. And I think that's a really nice message. So, Seconded. One of the other big themes of the book, this is a theme in a lot of YA literature, adult incompetence, but I don't think that anything really gets at it like this book, which is the truest and greatest childhood fear that the adults in your life either cannot or will not protect you and is what made these books so scary and so unsettling. And what I feel and think about a lot in my adult life, mm -hmm. <laughs> starting with the 2016 election, carrying through the start of the COVID pandemic, mm. carrying through the 2020 election and the insurrection mm -hmm. of just like, who is in charge? Yeah. You know, that there were these people in these positions of power who we relied on to do right by us, who, were either unwilling to protect us and actively wanted to hurt us or who were well-intentioned but completely fucking useless. It's so painful. I made that analogy so many times like in these last few years because that's exactly what it felt like. I was like, isn't anybody going to do something? Like, why are the people in power standing around and wringing their hands mm -hmm. when they are the ones who can do this? And all throughout the climate crisis, mm. I'm like, you are in charge help us <laughs> yeah i mean it is kind of what it feels like at least to be like a young adult in 2021 when trump was in office it felt like olaf was president exactly and now it feels like yes. on a good day it feels like justice strauss is president and on a bad day it feels more like mr poe is president <laughs> the tweets about like man somebody's really we gotta do something about the planet i'm like yeah we do! Now stop monologuing to Count Olaf about how we're gonna stop him and grab the fucker! During the 2020 election when people were like, man, I sure hope Trump doesn't steal the election, I was like, then stop him! <laughs> I know. Oh my god, I hope Count Olaf doesn't grab these kids again! So yeah, rereading these books was a trip. Yeah, they are in that regard timeless and painfully full of parallels to our world today. So on that note, it's time to rate <laughs> this book. We will be rating it out of ten anxious clowns. Delicious. Except I suppose you don't eat the clown. The clown is just he serves you the food, maybe. Yes. So it's it feels odd to say this. So far, Sarah and I have for the last 20 minutes been building up some some anger directed at various parties i want to be very clear this rating is for the books i would personally rate these first three books 10 out of 10 anxious clowns that rating does not apply to daniel handler that man has work to do <laughs> but yes book series incredible 10 out of 10 anxious clowns yes I would rate the first three books a 9 out of 10 Anxious Clowns, only because <laughs> I enjoy some of the later ones even more. 
And Daniel, I'm sorry. I just gotta, I can't, I can't go out without getting mad one more time. This should be clear to you how much we love these books. We don't often give 10 out of 10 ratings. Our distaste has nothing to do with your sense of humor in your writing. We think that is spectacular. You personally have disappointed us. I kind of hope he doesn't hear this, but <laughs> I also kind of hope he does. All right. Well, this has been a real roller coaster. Thank you guys for sticking through it till the end. Uh, we will be releasing future episodes with the next books in the series, so keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at reading underscore recess, and you can email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. Please reach out to us. We love to hear from our listeners. Yes, yes. Shout out to our South American listeners. We've recently gotten some new downloads in Brazil and Argentina, so thank you all. And if you enjoy this show, please rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find our show. And also recommend us to people in real life that also helps yes, people please. find our show to all you orphans slated to inherit generational wealth stay reading <laughs> it might be the only thing that can save you <laughs> <laughs>